In a world where film becomes reality, two hosts are dishing out the truth, blurring the lines between meaningful and mortifying. Prepare for the audio circus that is Drunk Humanity. Cheers! Welcome to Drunk Humanity. I'm Sam. And I'm Nate. And we have a really fun one. Yeah, we're going to switch it up a little bit this week. No scripts, kind of just off the cuff. We decided, let's tell two different stories. One about some failure. One about some success. Two documentaries for the price of one and half the time. And we're both drinking, so that's probably the best part. What do you got in your glass tonight? I actually got some, some wine. I usually don't drink wine. I was gifted a few bottles recently, so I got some Riesling. But yeah, what about what about yourself, Sam? What you got over there? I'm going with bourbon. Classic. Tends to be my podcast drink, <laughs> even though I never order this when I'm out at a bar. Bourbon straight, yeah. Bourbon straight, <laughs> yeah. When I drink indoors, I'm a grizzly old man sitting in on my porch in Tennessee. When I'm out at the bar, I'm a white girl drinking White Claws. <laughs> and, and you all can't see it right now because, it's, of course, it's an audio medium. But Sam also has two cigars in his mouth while he's drinking this <laughs> bourbon. Uh, I did. <laughs> well, I guess it probably makes sense to start with the story about failure first instead of the story about success. I feel like that's usually the natural progression. Uh, Sam, that was kind of your piece today was the story about failure in the documentary. So why don't we jump into that first? I have a really fun one. I know it's hard with failure as your topic <laughs> to cover in a podcast, right? One of the cool things that we're doing today, neither Nate nor I know what each other is covering. No idea. So this is a grand reveal. My <laughs> podcast today is Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Of course. I love that. You've told me about this so many times. I'm excited. Now, this documentary is directed by Alex Gibney, premiered in 2005, produced by 2929 Entertainment, and can be found on Amazon Prime. This one opens with a series of interviews from people from the company and reporters outside of it, kind of describing the nature of what Enron was as a company. Mm. I think a lot of these big corporations we see, we have no idea what they do. Never. Right? We have no idea what the hell's going on. Yeah. So it opens with a great line. It had taken Enron 16 years to go from about 10 billion of assets to 65 billion of assets. It took them 24 days to go bankrupt. <laughs> from $64 billion in assets, of course. That's not straight cash. But from that to bankrupt. In 24 days. Wow. What a month. That right there is your loss. <laughs> right? We could end right there. Yeah, literally. So we start in a courtroom where the presiding judge acknowledges this is the largest corporate bankruptcy in United States history. Hmm. The opening credits roll through on a luxury car driving through the night to Billie Holiday's God Bless the Child in the year 2002. The driver pulls over, the credits end, and he shoots himself in the head. No, what? That's how they open it. What the fuck? Was it at least like a scenic setting when he just goes and stops, parks his car, and shoots himself? I think it was in a park. He spared he spared those from looking at the sunset of seeing a suicide. He waited till it was a little bit more dark. Okay. So this leads to police commenting on the situation. 
identifying the man as John C. Cliff Baxter, who was a former Enron employee. Hmm. We transitioned to congressional hearings, and there's Florida Republican Cliff Stearns asking former Enron CEO Jeffrey Skilling if he knew the recently deceased Cliff Baxter. Skilling admits he does know Baxter and spoke with him close to his death, specifically about the Enron situation, but couldn't really delve into what those details are. Naturally. Yeah. You know, someone that you know kills themselves, but you just won't tell anyone what that was about. Sure. Yeah. Especially when it involves the largest corporate bankruptcy (laughs) in United States history. We couldn't ever guess what that might be about. No, we won't talk about any of that. Yeah. Enron at its height was valued at $70 billion and dealt primarily in energy and power. Mm. The executives were notorious for referring to themselves as the smartest guys in the room. Ken Lay, who was a chairman at Enron, along with Skilling, before a congressional committee, denies any wrongdoing in running the collapsed company. The media tee off on old Kenny boy. (laughs) And I'm not the only one to call on that. Only those close to Ken, like his wife, and former President George Bush can call him that to his face. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. Attorneys reveal that Lay, Skilling, and the other executives at the top saw the writing on the wall in the last days of the company and sold off all their stock before reporting their financials. The top executives converted almost $116 million of stock before massive sell-offs. Wow. So this was a public company. Like People were buying and trading these stocks of Enron at the time. Enron was the fifth largest company in the United States at this time. Wow. The documentary focuses on Kenny Boy at this point, (laughs) who comes from humble roots. His dad was a Baptist minister and had very little growing up. Ken got his PhD in economics and naturally was ambitious for a better life. So Kenny Boy is somewhat legit. He's someone who's been from both sides. Hmm. And I think he knew which side he'd rather live on. Sure. Don't blame him. Ken starts his career by going to Washington, D.C. in the belief that business thrives with the least amount of government involvement. This is where Lay establishes ties to other oil industry execs and ultimately the Bush family. A year ago, my approval rating was in the 30s. My nominee for the Supreme Court had just withdrawn. And my vice president had shot someone. The senior Bush during his reign as president helped Enron with billions of dollars in government subsidies. Ken Lay is described as someone who loves big ideas and surrounded himself with like-minded thinkers. Sure, smartest guys in the room. It's this kind of thinking that leads Lay and Skilling, the two, the two top guys in the early 90s of the company, to invest into natural gas. And this is where they see a good amount of profit, initially. The SEC approves what is known as mark-to-market accounting. Put simply... This just means that Enron can now declare profits for deals in the future. So they're not held liable for any deal that falls through in the future. Wow. So to investors, they're absolutely killing it. Enron's profit is whatever it wants it to be. (laughs) We can add a gazillion dollars to the bottom line. 
All right, that sounds fantastic. Skilling is referred to as a reformed dork, going from a balding blob to someone who works out and enjoys risky adventures. Sounds like Jeff Bezos, yeah. So, Skilling hosts weekend getaways with top executives at the company that were called legendary. Jeff would ride dirt bikes and seek dangerous situations. And in one trip, they went down to Mexico and old Kenny boy crashed his bike, getting stitches to patch up his nerd face. <laughs> the best character from the documentary is this guy, Lou Pye. Lou Pye? Lou Pye is one lieutenant that the film highlights as a shady, mysterious executive. He's called the invisible CEO, but is often seen burying his face into dirty, sweaty strippers. What? I love this guy already. He would go to the strip club every day after work, charging bills straight to Enron's expense accounts. Wow. Just take it out of the profits. Yeah. He leaves Enron with $250 million in his pocket, more than any other executive. After selling off his stock before the crash to finance a divorce, remarrying a stripper girlfriend. No. His stripper habits may have gained him hundreds of millions of dollars. That's insane. Enron was hemorrhaging money through this time. Their investments into natural energy plants cost the company billions in upfront costs to build. And they were showing little in return. Enron buys PG&E, which further drives stock value in the rising markets. Now, notably, PG&E operates primarily in California. By the year 2000, Enron is valued at $52 billion. Wow. The executives begin selling their shares at this point. Did you convert stock uh, worth $66 million? Uh, I don't know, but I, I don't Would that be surprising to me. you to learn that you did that? No, that would, uh, that would not be surprising. Forbes magazine does a survey among all the Fortune 500 companies. It is found that Enron is number one in most admired to work for in innovation. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm sure all the employees are loving it there. In the same Forbes piece of non-fake news, Trump hotels and casinos was voted least admired. <laughs> I mean, so hey, it's not a completely bullshit report. Merrill Lynch gets caught conspiring with Enron in a Nigerian barge scheme. No. Where Merrill Lynch buys three Nigerian power barges from Enron. They got caught with a Nigerian scheme. Yeah. But did a prince sell it to him over in Nigeria? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Jeff Skilling starts coming into work looking like shit. And in a call with analysts, he receives criticism that Enron, one of the largest financial companies, can't produce a balance sheet. He calls the guy an asshole in response which I just assumed was a usual Wednesday lunch meeting. <laughs> it's during this that Ken Lay walks into Skilling's office asking for carpet advice for the new $45 million company jet. No. <laughs> the solution to their short-term debt problem is to create power cutbacks in California using PG&E, infamously causing blackouts in the early 2000s. What this does is this raises the price for power tremendously. The governor of California, Clay Davis, calls for Enron to answer for these power problems. Skilling speaks in San Francisco following the public outcries to explain Enron's side. But protesters heckle him. One lady even delivers a blueberry pie to his face. No. It's just straight pies him? Mostly in the eye and ear area. Nice. But you get nervous, you know? It's 
Ken Lay gets a layup <laughs> with George Bush becoming president. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. Bush and Lay refuse to help California in their energy problems, leading the citizens to recall Governor Davis and rallying behind an unlikely bodybuilding champ turned muscular villain turned children's movie star to now incoming governor of California, Mr. Arnold J. Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah, it's me, the Schwarzenegger. How would, how would Schwarzenegger address the power outages? Flex your biceps and just power through it. These energy companies need to pump it up. <laughs> so Enron indirectly led to Arnold Schwarzenegger becoming governor of California. Wow. Good for, I mean, so there's, there's some good out of this story, I guess, right? I'm not yes, from California, but I, I think people like him in California. It's around this time that Skilling steps down as CEO. Most take this as a sign that Skilling knew the end of Enron was near. Sharon Watkins is the first brick removed in the demolition of Enron. She whistle blew like an NBA referee in the playoffs when she discovers the massive fraud going on with fast house companies. <laughs> Ken Lay tries to calm stockholders by assuring everything was fine with Enron's books. While just a few blocks away, Enron's primary accounting firm was shredding their Enron documents and in total, one ton of paper. <laughs> Holy shit. December 2nd, 2001, with the stock price at now 40 cents per share, Enron formally declares Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Hmm. Andy Fastow cooperated with the government and got a 10-year prison sentence. Skilling and Lay are also arrested at the time of the documentary. And I think the big lesson here is that no company is too big to fail, but that no person is too big to fail either. Holy shit. Wow. And now it's time for some Fast Facts. Three, two, one. 20,000 Enron employees lost their jobs due to the fall of the company. Average severance pay was only $4,500. Top executives were paid $55 million in bonuses around this time. What? Employees lost $1.2 billion in retirement funds, but gained back $85 million after a class action lawsuit. Billion. Mark Cuban gets an executive producer credit for the film. And for that amount. Old Kenny Boy Lay dies of a heart attack in the year 2006 after filming was done on this, during sentencing, after being convicted of financial crimes at Enron. In 2010, Enron's story is produced into a Broadway musical, <laughs> and, and it too collapsed just as fast as the company collapsed, <laughs> lasting 12 days. No! Skilling was released from prison in 2019 after serving 12 years in prison. And those are our fast facts. Wow. Wow, a Broadway musical. I really wish I could have saw that. That would have been amazing. That's... Especially the, the killing themselves. Oh. You would have had a whole song. Gun to your head, sitting in a park. Please don't kill yourself until it gets dark. What am I going to do with these billions of dollars? <laughs> wow, that's a fun one. Holy shit. I mean, 
I mean, it doesn't epitomize failure more than that because I feel like when you think of a company going bankrupt, you do think of Enron, right? I mean, that is like the token fuck-up company. On that note, let me take a quick wine break, fill up my glass. All right, Nate, curious to see what you have to lift us back up as far as personal gain in a documentary. Yeah. So everyone get strapped in, get ready, get motivated. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, hey, sure, I could do Michael Jordan. I could do Bill Gates. I could do Jeffrey Epstein. You could do me. Wait, what? (laughs) I, I mean, hey. I Wait. could do Bill Cosby probably even, right? I mean, look at him. He's out of jail. That's a success. <laughs> or the pudding pops. <laughs> Wait, how, do you, how do you even do a Bill Cosby impression? Or the jello and then you have the pudding and then you have the... No, that's... No, no. We'll cut that out. Just drink the drink, sweetheart. <laughs> and this documentary is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Nice. Have you ever made your own sushi? I haven't. No, I know you have. Tell us a little bit about that. Way more complex than it comes across. Really? However, if you've rolled weed before, all my stoners out there would find this very simple to do. It's just a fat blunt with rice inside. It's a fat blunt with that loud that you do not want to allow (laughs) to escape. (laughs) You can't. This this one can't fall apart. But if there's holes in it, you won't notice, right? Yeah. No, you just eat it. (laughs) That's funny. At my local sushi place, I get the Crunchyroll, which is essentially your choice of fish inside, you know, typically salmon or tuna. It's got some cucumber. It's got some avocado. It's got the seaweed and then the rice on the outside. And then on top, they just crush up some Chex Mix and just throw that on top. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the Crunchyroll. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so today, Jiro dreams of sushi. Let's go into it. So Sam, just to kind of set the tone, let's imagine... You're getting off of work. You're headed towards the subway station. You get in the subway station and you notice the next train isn't coming for another 20 minutes. So you're like, shit, well, let me go ahead and grab a drink. Let me go ahead and grab something to eat. You're looking around and next thing you know, you found this hole in the wall in the subway station that is a three Michelin star restaurant and the best sushi place in the world. And that is this restaurant, Juro Ono. How did they come across this hole-in-the-wall restaurant in a subway stop? So let's kind of get into it a little bit. So the restaurant itself, which is Juro Ono in Tokyo, Japan, this restaurant opened in 1965. Juro Ono is the owner and founder of Juro Restaurant. And so the documentary itself is about the restaurant, but really the sushi chef himself, Jiro Ono, who was highly regarded as the best sushi chef or really craftsman in the world. There's a saying in the sushi world, referred to as the shokunin, 
which is essentially a highly respected term in Japan as a craftsman or as an artisan of their craft. And in the sushi world, Juro Ono is that shokunin. He is the best of the best. Over in Japan, I mean, really, they typically eat it as just the fish and the rice itself. It's super simple. So at Jiro Ono, this restaurant, it is the most minimalistic place that you will ever go to. One particular food critic in Japan says that he has been to every single sushi, ramen, as well as eel place in Tokyo. Why does every sushi place have eel? But I've never ordered that once in my life. Who the fuck is ordering eels so much that they could support that on the menu? Dude, you're missing out. I love that shit. I love that and octopus. I will fuck up some octopus rolls. Everyone who's been to Jiro says that they get a little nervous when they go in. Some might even pee themselves. They don't say that in documentary. I just kind of assume that. There's only 10 seats in the restaurant. They all sit right in front of the bar. So literally you're watching Jiro Ono create the sushi right in front of you. And it really comes down to tradition which is obviously a very big thing in Japan when it comes to working. But he takes his day-to-day procedure insanely seriously. So growing up, his dad was a boat driver. And he was essentially taking people back and forth between these different areas of Japan. And up until he was about seven, his, when his dad became a hardcore alcoholic and essentially left him. And he was on his own at that point. He essentially started at a local restaurant up until the point in his teenage years where he moved to Tokyo and started studying as an apprentice. And prices start at around 300,000 Japanese yen, which, Sam, I don't expect you to know this, but do you have any idea how that might translate into U.S. dollars? 250? <laughs> Actually, really fucking good. It's about 275. You might as well have hit it on the head. That's very impressive. Because I'm coming off a financial documentary. <laughs> I got yeah. it. Enron, Enron was constantly swapping Japanese yen with dollars to oil and just, yeah. That's how they made profits. They just <laughs> reported in yen. Whatever it takes. I mean, Jiro might have been in on that. Yeah, this meal might have cost around $275 and it could take someone about 15 minutes to eat if they just rush through it. As soon as that sushi is put in front of you, as soon as this one piece of sushi is put in front of you, there's etiquette there. You have to eat this immediately or the taste is gone in their mind. So they put it down in front of you. You eat it. They wipe the slab of rock in front of you and they essentially wait for your reaction. Is this a situation where you have to jump up from your chair and just punch in the air and go, (laughs) (laughs) if anything, it just comes with a nod. Maybe a Japanese like, There's no fancy techniques used whatsoever. All of this is coming from repetition and just constantly working on your craft. And that goes down to every single component of the sushi. They say that the rice is the most important part. Really? The rice vendor for Jiro Ono shows up and they're just talking shit. They're like two 80-year-old guys, just masters of the craft. And this rice vendor says he only sells to this restaurant, because no one knows how to fucking cook this rice. The restaurant itself, they have, let's say, six workers in there, not including Jiro Ono. So most of those are apprentices. One of them also is his oldest son. Uh, He's very talented in his own right. It's kind of known that if you own a business, your oldest son is going to take over that business once you retire or pass. 
none of his kids went to college. He has two sons, neither of them went to college because it really is an art. Jiro, went, like I said, started working in sushi at seven years old. When he got married, him and his wife had about seven Japanese yen in the bank, which is fucking nothing. He was working from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day in the sushi restaurant that he worked in and barely saw his sons growing up because he was just so dedicated to this craft. And Japan in general has this idea of a salary man. It's the salary man idea in Japan is that you just fucking essentially just work your ass off and you get paid, but you should just be happy fucking working and dedicating your life to an organization or a business or an idea, you know, and they are so passionate about that. I mean, in one scenario, they talk about how he essentially massages and cleans an octopus for his sushi for 40 to 50 minutes. Sometimes you got to massage the puss, you know? <laughs> you have to. Who, who the hell knows what that means or what that does? But he's the best sushi restaurant for a reason, right? You, his taste buds don't lie, right? And that goes back to the talent. And like, his hips don't lie. <laughs> and his hips don't lie, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Going to the fish market and everything, they cover that in great detail. Essentially, they have a vendor for everything. They have one that focuses on tuna, one that focuses on shrimp. There's a funny scene of this tuna vendor who's at a big tuna auction. There's just dead fucking fat ass tuna everywhere, right? And the way that they kind of check if it's a good tuna or not, they essentially fucking feel out this tuna they're essentially rubbing their fucking fingers on this tuna, just jamming into it to tell with tenderness, fattiness. I don't know what they're looking for, but they finger that tuna. Finger that tuna. Finger that tuna. <laughs> How do they get their fingers inside of that fish? Well, luckily at the market, the head's already cut off. So it's pretty easy. You just kind of go into that meat. So he's got masters on everything, right? He's a master himself at the sushi. He's got, he's got masters that are supplying him with the fish. And then these employees that he have, or really a lot of them are apprentices. Of course, he has oldest son working with him, who's about mid-50s at this point. And actually, it's funny because Jiro Ono himself, he's 85 years old. He works every single day. He actually hates holidays because he doesn't get to work. He is so set on a routine and schedule he gets on the same car in the same spot on the subway car and goes about every single step like it's a schedule, like it's an order that he has to do. But why is it Japanese people live so long? And that's just an impressive thing in, in itself. And sure, the diet probably adds to that. I mean, this guy's eating nothing but sushi all day. I don't know. I knew a girl once that ate sushi for three days straight and shit herself. So I don't know what this sushi actually does. <laughs> Dude, I'll never forget my first year in New York. I went to this all-you-could-eat sushi place in Manhattan. I went on a date there. And, of course, it's like maybe $50 all-you-can-eat, right? So you're thinking, okay, hey, I got to eat my money's worth worth of sushi. I probably ate, no joke, I think I, I think I added it up. It was close to 30 pieces of, like, nigiri sushi, like, legitimate, like, sushi. And I felt so sick after I had to take a taxi on the way home. Like the girl was trying to like come back with me and I was just, I was felt so sick. I had to take a taxi home by myself. Props that you, uh, you know, had the chopsticks to fucking go through with taking her home or at least entertain that. (laughs) 
Jiro received three Michelin stars back in 2007, and Jiro Ono was the oldest person to do so. But the funny thing is, he didn't actually cook for the Michelin reviewers. It was his oldest son who actually cooked for him. And Sam, I don't know if you're familiar with the origination of the Michelin Review, but it was founded back in 1900 on the dot. And they look for three specific things in all the restaurants that they review. Wait, is this the Michelin company that produces tires? Honestly, no idea. They didn't talk about it in the documentary. So I know a little about this. And yes, the Michelin company that produces tires also produces the three-star rating for restaurants. This is due back in the day to traveling restrictions in that hmm. these restaurants were going to be the most desirable to travel to using Michelin tires. The company goes hand-in-hand, hand, however, two separate divisions when it comes to grading food. Even though they don't touch on that as much as I like in the documentary, they do mention how a three-star rating essentially means that it is worth traveling to that country for that restaurant. So, if, for example, Jiro, it's worth essentially traveling to Japan to try this restaurant. So that makes sense. They're like, fucking load up your tires, travel across the sea, and fucking go try this restaurant. The mission reviewers really look for three things when it comes to food. They look for quality, of course, originality, a big component about that, and the third component is consistency. And they say that anyone and everyone who has come to Jiro has never had a bad experience. And so, all of this being said, the documentary ends on somewhat of a sad note, where they talk about the fish industry in Japan, and especially the tuna business in Japan, which of course is just being decimated by really the, the sushi industry and the demand out there. And we all have Jiro to thank for it. We do, yes. And every single one of those tuna that is being taken out of the sea I want you all to know they are being fingered by a very masterful <laughs> Japanese man. <laughs> so I have a few, I don't want to say fast facts. If anything, we could even call them slow facts. I could, I could say them really slowly. Slow facts. <laughs> and now it's time for some fast facts. Three, two, one. Sam, today we can go to Jiro. However... You have to have either a special connection or be a regular or be with a luxury hotel concierge. So essentially, we're never going. Rapido. And he was stripped of all three Michelin stars after they stopped serving the public. Michelin says their policy is to introduce restaurants that everybody can go to and eat and you are willing to travel to the country for, which Juro is no longer associated with. Quick. Most people think that sushi rice is supposed to be cold, but actually, it's supposed to be room temperature. Faster. And that was my last fact, actually. <laughs> uh, overall, documentary was a strange work of art in a way, but it's actually, a, in the end, a really beautiful thing. And luckily, I was a little high for the documentary as well, so that made me a little more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, I, I do highly recommend it. Uh, thank you all for, for listening. This, of course, is a... New format for us. I think we're going to go with the idea of the, what, double shots for this as a series? Yeah, we've been taking double shots this whole time. Nate's been chugging bottles of wine throughout <laughs> this. So it just seems fitting that double shots is now one of the formats that we'll be producing. Yep. Let us know what you think about this. We'd love to hear. 
Drunkumentary Podcast on all socials. Nate, where can they find us on email? Yeah, please let us know your feedback, thoughts. Were we drunk enough? Were we not drunk enough? At drunkumentarypodcast at gmail.com. So please give us some feedback into other areas we should cover. We'll have more guests, more topics, more documentaries to review. Stay tuned. We freaking love you. That's that. Me faso. <laughs>